there was still a lot of unknowns, accessing healthcare and that it was absolutely not cheap. And there was a lot of social stigma and oppression and there was a lot of things that was just kind of like, this is not going to be an easy road. That's Zach Cannell, a transgender man who lived the first 25 years of his life as a woman. I don't look back with regret and go, you know, I wish I was born now and I wish I had access to this and this. Like, it's made me who I am now. And, you know, I'm really happy and excited for, you know, young people who are aware of their identity. Zach felt like he didn't belong in his body from a young age and it made growing into adulthood very confusing. There was a lot of social stigma and oppression and there was a lot of things that was just kind of like, this is not gonna be an easy road. Zach was supported by his family when he came out, but the same can't be said for everybody. It's a huge hit to your mental health if you're not supported. Research shows people in the rainbow community experience a disproportionately high rate of mental health challenges. As an advocate, facilitator, and health professional, Zach has seen it all. And it's not because being trans makes you mentally unwell, it's because of the systems and the lack of support. It's, it's hard. Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Before we kick this off, I just want to say thanks so much to everyone who's taken 15 to 90 seconds out of their day to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It boosts us up the ranks massively and makes a huge difference to how many people we can reach with these potentially life-saving stories. So thank you. And for those who haven't got around to it, please, if Youngblood has delivered you some value, let us know on there. Cheers, legends. Looking to spoil your better half this Valentine's Day? Well, Medley Jewelry has you covered with quality pieces including 10 karat gold necklaces, engravable pendants, and their best-selling diamond letter jewelry. Search www.medleyjewelry.com.au and use our code YOUNGBLOOD15 for 15% off. Trigger warning, if you find anything spoken about in today's episode distressing, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Zach, when do you remember first becoming aware that you weren't comfortable within your own body? There's been, I guess, a lot of fleeting points across the different points of my life. I know that when I, you know, was a kid, there was little things like I never was the stereotypical girl. I was always, my, my parents were very well aware I didn't want to wear dresses and wear pink and didn't want to play with toys and things that my sister did. So it wasn't that, you know, I was super clearly saying, no, I'm definitely a boy. It was more that I was the tomboy. Yeah. I was, you know, the one climbing trees and, you know, I was the one playing with Action Man instead of Barbie. And were you made to feel like that was unusual? No, my parents were always very supportive. Um, the, you know, my, my standard wardrobe was jeans and t-shirt and, you know, there was never any, any reason that my parents made me feel like that was the wrong thing to wear. I was very fortunate that I wasn't sort of, yeah, I wasn't pigeonholed by family or anything like that. Most of my friends were boys growing up. I did cop a bit of flack from that in primary school and high school. And I, yeah, I did try to fit in, but it was just one of those things that, yeah, you kind of feel as though you, you, you could be friends with the boys, but they always know that you're not one of the boys. Right. And you're not girly enough to be one of the girls. You know, I tried to do the uh, the sporty girl and that didn't kind of work either. Not because I wasn't sporty, I was, a, I was quite athletic back then. But yeah, it was just, from a social perspective, it was always a bit of an outsider. Coming home could be who I wanted to be. I got to sort of later high school and you know that's when puberty's kicked in and that's when people are starting to start dating and things like that and i thought okay maybe i'm i'm bi or gay and yeah i started dating women that wasn't too bad that kind of gave me a, a space that i could be you know i went with the maybe i'm the butch lesbian still didn't feel right there was still everything that was still feminine attached to it I just wanted to be treated like every other guy. I was doing the exact same activities, but I wasn't treated the same and I wasn't seen as the same. So obviously there's a lot going on 
uh, in life during those formative years anyway? Was this always overwhelmingly the thing that was on your mind? Like you'd go to sleep and you'd wake up thinking about this or would you forget about it sometimes? How sort of intense was that to live with? Yeah, it differed depending. It wasn't even until I was in my very early 20s that I even knew that gender diversity was a thing. So for a lot of those earlier years, it was just more navigating different areas of discomfort. So things like menstruation were, you know, absolutely horrendous. But I just thought that was what everybody went through. Mm. When that got to things like, you know, people having discussions of, you know, do you want to be a mum? And it's like, no, yeah, no, I do not. Mm. <laughs> and it wasn't the fact that anyone phrased it, you know, do you want to be a parent? It was, do you want to be a mum? And yeah, then it was just things like, you know, where you, you, when you're in a workplace and they, they, you know, they have formal gatherings like AGM dinners and things like that, the expectations of what to wear. And even though no one had strictly said like, girls must wear this and boys must wear this and, you know, the erasure of the non-binary and gender diverse community, it was just that perceived social expectation of what to wear. And yeah, I'd break the rule every time and I'd rock up in a pantsuit or I'd rock up in a men's suit. Yeah. Was it like you felt more uncomfortable sort of the older you got and the more yeah. societal pressure was placed on you to conform to a, a certain role? Yeah. And some of it was internalised. You know, I know that nobody said that I had to do this or this to an extent. Some of it was, you know, the way we, we still treat people is very gendered. Um, you know, you still see the you greet a guy and you, you shake his hand, you greet a female and, you know, it's the, the gentle lean in and, you know, if you're familiar or acquainted, the kiss on the cheek. There's still just those little things that we treat people differently and it was those things that were very, very apparent. So did you feel like you sort of grew up without a sense of identity or did you have that anyway and this was just like a missing part of it? It was more just that it was continually evolving. There was... As my language grew and as my connection to different people and community groups grew and as my access to the internet and the wider world and, you know, what I could and couldn't do evolved, so did my understanding of who I was. I don't look back with regret and go, you know, I wish I was born now and I wish I had access to this and this. Like, it's made me who I am now and, you know, I'm really happy and excited for you know, young people who are aware of their identity and who can have those discussions earlier on. But yeah, there are points in time where I can look back and go, oh man, that would have been so much easier if I, if I knew then what I know now. Yeah, I understand that. So when did you get to the point where you thought, oh, actually, I think I am a man, I need to transition? I met a client in a previous workplace. Um, so I was working in mental health and my team leader had said, look, I've got a client who is telling us that they're, they're transgender. And, you know, I was the, yeah, member of the rainbow community on the team. It was, you know, the, the queer, mm. can you go and have a chat with this person? Like the hell is transgender? <laughs> right. I, I don't know what this is. How long is. ago was this? Uh, I was 22, 23 at the time. So going back about 11, 12 years and yeah, had no idea what was kind of, what was accessible, what was, you know, what could people do to, to support that journey. And yeah, but then after chatting with this individual and, and, you know, hearing the experience that this person was, was talking about, I'm kind of sitting there, you know, listening to their story, but at the same time in the back of my head, I'm kind of going, that's me, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's alarm bells ringing here and it's not because of the client. It's because of what the client is saying I'm resonating with. Mm. And it was just like a fire had been lit. And from there it was researching everything I could find. And yeah. So you really didn't know it was an option until that point? No, the it's, it's odd. You know, the only times that you'd ever heard of, of gender diverse individuals, you know, the media is always negatively portraying transgender women. Mm. So, you know, I'd seen trans women, but I'd never seen a, a trans man. I'd never seen someone who lived my experience. And 
Yeah, because stereotypically we do see it go the other way and that's yeah. quite sort of popularised. Going back 10, 15 years ago the, and even still now, you know, the media trope of, you know, the trans woman is the sex worker murder victim or, mm. you know, she's the serial killer in disguise and, you know, it's it's all the negativity. But I'd never seen a trans man, positive or negative. I'm sure that they existed. And I know now in, in retrospect that they absolutely did. They just didn't have a platform. And what did you find out about all of that when you started researching it? There was absolutely trans men and there was trans mask individuals and even early indications then of non-binary and gender diversity. So was that liberating or did it make you fearful? Did you feel like once you'd found out about it that, yes, this is the path I need to go down? Mm. It, was, it was absolutely at that point I was going, this is exactly what I need. Mm. And... You know, it was, how can I start this yesterday? You know, looking at testosterone treatments and, you know, how do I access this? And, you know, what is this going to do to my body? And Because I guess you've been feeling this way for a long time by this point. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when you're looking online, you know, the, the only things that you sort of come up, especially in the early days, were, you know, either American or British or, you know, they were... They were in these deep pockets of, you know, internet websites that you're sort of going. Yeah, you couldn't just find a Facebook page for it. And, yeah. yeah. And I think back in those days, we were still using MySpace. So yeah. <laughs> if that's any indicator how old we're going. But yeah, the the discussions then, the, you know, finding forums and going, okay, what is there in Adelaide? Is there anyone that I can connect with? I can find small pockets online. And I found a TV show at that point called My Transsexual Summer. It was a, it was like a British reality show that had this group of six individuals. And, you know, there was a couple of trans guys on that show. And I was, one was a little bit further into his journey. One was sort of just starting. And I've gone, holy heck, like, this is a thing. But trying to find anything locally, um, yeah. I made contact with an individual who was running a, a youth group at the time. And by the time I made contact with her, she said like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm absolutely devastated to tell you, but the group literally ceased three weeks ago. Hmm. And I've gone, you've got to be kidding me. Right. <laughs> so where were you able to find assistance to start actually moving towards that? Um, I reached out to a, a friend of mine who worked at China Say, um, and yeah, she said, look, I, I know a, a, that there's an individual I know, um, and her partner is a trans man. Um, and before I link you, you know, I'll have a chat with her and you can have a chat with her and, you know, then we can see if we can link you with him. And yeah, that was then when I met Sean Miller who became a very good friend and yeah Sean was one of the first trans men that I'm I actually got to meet in person and became, what impact did that have on you once you actually met someone who'd done what you wanted to do oh it was so powerful to be able to see him in person to be able to to hear his journey mm. what did he tell you about it like, what did he say about the reality of it that there was points where it was scary that there were points where you know, there was still a lot of unknowns, accessing healthcare and that it was absolutely not cheap. And there was a lot of social stigma and oppression. And there was a lot of things that was just kind of like, this is not going to be an easy road. And have you found all that to be true? Yep. But I wouldn't change it. Well, I'd change all of those things, but I wouldn't change me. So he guided you through it and sort of showed you what you needed to do? Yeah, he gave me some of the options of different pathways and... I kind of broke a lot of the rules in a lot of those things. Um, I wasn't happy with the system at that point and I was in an incredibly privileged position that I knew how different health systems worked working in the sector. So the, there was a piece of legislation that it was the Sex Reassignment Act of 1988. And when it was put in place, like it was revolutionary. It was one of the first in Australia to go we acknowledge this community needs healthcare. This is how it can happen. 
and it's embedded in legislation, people can't deny you healthcare. But as time passed, that piece of legislation became more and more restrictive hmm. and it actually became human rights denying. And at that time, you know, we didn't have a gender clinic. There had been one in the early 90s um, at Flinders Medical Centre and, you know, Dr. Rob Lyons with, you know, the Australian Professional Association for Trans Health. But there was very few GPs, if any, and yeah. So it wasn't the case that you could go to a GP and they would have any idea what no. to say to you, really? Everybody just knew that there was one psychiatrist that was Dr. Lyons doing this work. And, you know, when I contacted his office, the waiting list was phenomenal. Yeah. You know, he's one, one guy. <laughs> mm. And it was, yeah, it was, I, I can't wait 18 months just to get the first appointment and then you know, I don't know how long it's going to take before he refers me to the medical specialist. And I'd been diagnosed a few years earlier with bipolar disorder type two. And I already had a psychiatrist at that point in time. So yeah, I spoke to the psychiatrist and my GP. They had some conversations and went, yep, we know that this has been an ongoing thing of this, this dysphoria and discomfort. Um, and I found a GP down south by pure chance um, who was happy to write a prescription with support of my psychiatrist and my GP. And he said, yeah, I'll start the process. So I met with him a couple of times. And six months later, when I did get that first appointment with Rob Lyons, he's going, what are you doing here? <laughs> like you weren't doing the right thing? Um, not necessarily that I'd done the wrong thing, but more just like what do what do you need from me now right okay so there were you know it was one of those things where i'd kind of i broke the rules i'd gone against the legislation i'd gone against what was the the expectation of supposed to happen so <laughs> yeah when but i it seems like that was the right that ended up being the right call and it set a precedent that you know we didn't all have to access this one specific path mm. And when we'd looked into state, you know, as time progressed and as more people started entering this sector, we've kind of gone, yeah, there's got to be, there's got to be another way. This isn't working. This is, this is not healthcare that's sustainable for one practitioner, but also not sustainable for a community. But we cannot rely on one person. Because it wasn't really this. acknowledging the community at that time. It was just saying, oh, maybe it'll be like one person here and there who would yeah. have, have that concern, but obviously it was far greater than that. Yeah. And what's the situation with that now in terms of if people want to access that kind of healthcare, find a doctor who knows how to work with them? Is that a lot easier to do now? Yes and no. So we still, we still have very few practitioners who, who specialize in the area. Um, and it's for a variety of reasons. You know, the, there's, services now that are set up to to do that specialist service but we're trying to get the health sector to realize that trans health care is just like any other area of healthcare. it's not a specialist thing we see time and time again with advocates having this discussion that the trans community is just like any other community the, the way that yes we might take a synthetic hormone that you know it it has altered the way I look from mm. how I was born. But everything else is, my human body is still just requires healthcare. So what are the problems that people run into again and again, going to visit GPs, things that make them feel uncomfortable or like they aren't gonna get the, the service that they need? Well, I mean, the first big one is language. So a lot of people feel as though when they go and have those conversations with a medical practitioner that they're either gonna be shut down the, the doctor's going to have no clue mm. or they're just going to be outright denied. So, you know, I know the first few times that I was calling around to doctors, you know, the language was really archaic or it was just outright offensive. Or in some instances it was, no, we don't, I don't treat people like you. And to hear that from a doctor, like, yeah, that's, that's hurtful. And I suppose if enough people hear that kind of response, then it's assumed that that's going to be the general yeah. consensus from 
all sort of medical professionals, which probably yeah. wouldn't be true, hopefully, but yeah. No, and I mean, for, for trans and gender diverse individuals, like we're just looking for someone to to just basically go, yes, I'm, I'm listening to you. I believe you, I affirm who you are. Let's put the options in place that, that suit you. Because not everybody can or wants to medically transition. Not everybody wants or needs surgery. Hmm. It's people's journeys are very individual. Yeah, it's shades of grey. It's not yeah. all black and white. The same Just like thing. every other element of human diversity. Same with trans and gender diverse individuals. Mm. So, so yeah. how, how was your experience of transitioning from when it started and right the way through? Like what actually did you what notice happened to the body and how did that feel? Yeah, I mean, starting testosterone. Um, I mean, I wore a chest binder for quite a while before I was able to start testosterone. And a chest binder is, is a garment that people wear. It compresses the, the breast tissue. And yeah, when worn correctly, it's not painful or, or anything like that. It's the most comfortable garment to ever wear. But it's, yeah, it's kind of designed to go, yep, this gives the appearance of a more flatter or masculine chest. And that was a huge euphoria feeling, like you got to the stage where I wouldn't even leave my bedroom without wearing it. Then when I started testosterone, it was, you know, I noticed that my voice dropped, sex drive increased, body hair, facial hair. But there were some things that happened quite quickly, and there were some things that took longer. Obviously, it's, it's puberty. So, you know, one of the things when I'm chatting with people now about my lift experience and what they can expect, you know, drawing back on what I, I went through, it's like, yeah, I wasn't able to actually even grow a mustache until about two years ago. And <laughs> it's I've pretty convincing now, I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, I've been on testosterone now for over eight years. Yeah. And yeah, like these things, they, they take time as, as much as we hope that, you know, that that first injection of testosterone or the first, you know, application of gel, however you're taking it, you, you hope overnight to, you know, wake up and yep. it's, Doesn't it's work a like process. That. How long into it did it take before you felt like, okay, this is pretty much where I want to be? Probably when I got to, I mean, I, most people were interpreting me and, and reading me as male by the three to four month mark. Yeah. So that was probably the first step. You know, on the phone, it was pretty convincing by after the first month. I already had a pretty deep voice anyway for a female range. Yeah. So, yeah, testosterone in that regard, no, we got along very well. Um, what was it like to watch yourself change so dramatically? For me, it was more gradual. So, you know, I was hypervigilant to it. I was looking in the mirror each day going, you know, you know, oh, what is this hair thicker than this one? Or, <laughs> yep. look, I've got my first chest like hair. Like a teenage boy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, like, oh, my God, like, you know, you, you notice those first few things and you're just kind of, you're, you're super excited, but you're hypervigilant to it. You're, you know, I remember being in the state emergency service when I was transitioning and, you know, I, you'd wear full overalls. And, you know, I remember using a stand to pee device, an STP. And, you know, it was those first things of, you know, crap, I'm on a call out, you know, I'm doing a search and rescue in the middle of the bush and I need to go use the bathroom. And I know that I can, you know, don't have to strip the overalls off, but I did have a question from a teammate who was like, how the hell did you do that? And it's like, do you ask everybody how do they go to the bathroom? Why do you feel it's okay to ask me? Just because you're curious about anatomy. Mm. So... But at the same time, it was like he saw me as a guy, but he just knew me that I was a slightly different guy. How do you go with those questions now? Like, is that a point where you, something you become offended by or how you sort of like pass that? And you think most people actually <laughs> are genuinely interested or are they trying to sort of have a shot at you? No, I mean, for most people, you know, as I was progressing through my journey earlier on, it was, you know, oh, you're kind of androgynous looking. Are you a girl or are you a boy? Or, you know, it was those kind well, of people things. People would ask you that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Through my journey, there was a lot of people who were like, so are you going to have surgery? You're taking testosterone. Are you going to grow a penis? How do you have sex? Do you now date women? Are you straight? And it's all of those kinds of things that it's like, if I was to ask you this, how would you feel? 
And it's not that I'm offended by it, but it's just like, do you realize how much of an invasive question you're asking my medical history? You're asking my love life. Yeah, it's the attitude that because you're doing something different that everyone deserves the right to know. Yeah, that it's a little said, bit we of... are doing a podcast about it, so tell me now. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I. this is the thing that we try and convey is that I'm happy to share my journey. Not everybody is, can, or wants and to. And they don't owe it to people, especially exactly. people they don't know, I suppose. Yeah, like it's it's a little bit of a privilege Mm. to you know sort of sit there and to to be able to share my journey and you know i'm in a position where i feel that i have the support around me to do so you know from my parents from my family from partners friends my employer like i i have amazing support systems not everybody is so fortunate and you've come a long way i mean this has been a very long journey that you've been on it seems like you're in a place where you're comfortable now so you are in that position but yeah. it's still so important that someone's going to speak out and talk about what that's what that actually means and what that looks like because I guess you never know who's listening or who's watching who might really want to know the answers <laughs> to that question and see how that can turn out. Yeah. So how did it affect your sex life once you had got well into that transitioning phase? Yeah, I mean, it's it was difficult because I did notice that testosterone significantly increased my sex drive. Um I noticed that too. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. (laughs) Did you have partners over that period of time? Yeah. And it was, it was difficult because, you know, there was a mismatched desire and my body was changing. And, you know, one of the things that testosterone does do is it increases slightly the the size of the clitoris and it's, you know, you get what they call a, a micro penis to an extent. And, you know, my body was much more sensitive and orgasms changed the way they felt. And Were you with people that you were with before transitioning after? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my relationship did end for different reasons, probably about a year into my journey. How did they respond to the fact that you had chosen to transition? Yeah, it wasn't a huge deal. My My partner at that point in time was quite positive and supportive and yeah, but unfortunately the relationship it wasn't to be and that happens but then the prospect of dating as as a trans man was mm. yeah like didn't have the, the apps back then either <laughs> no no <laughs> <laughs> then it was you know okay so who what mm. and i dated a work colleague for a while from another organization um, you know, and that, that just occurred naturally. And then, you know, going to a, another event a few years later and, you know, I did the, the single thing for a little while whilst I was still going through my journey and through, you know, I was having top surgery at that stage and was moving out of home and exploring different aspects of, of my life and what I wanted to do. So dating wasn't kind of at the forefront. And then the apps did exist. Um, and I, I met an amazing individual who identifies as non-binary. And yeah, we were together for three, almost four years, I think. And felt incredibly embraced and supported. I could be my, my in-laws at the time. They knew exactly my background. There was no judgment, shame or stigma. Um, yeah. And yeah, still, even now we're, we may not be together in a relationship, but we're still very good friends. And I currently have two partners at the moment. I identify as polyamorous, um, who are both amazing. Sounds pretty good overall. Yeah, I've been very fortunate. So yeah. do people who are transgender often date other people who are as well? Yeah, people are attracted to people. So for some people, you know, there is those contentious discussions around genital preference and things like that. And others are just like, I'm attracted to the individual. What's in your pants is you know, is second to who you are as a person. Mm. And your family, I understand, was really supportive throughout all this, which would have made a massive difference. Yeah. From your personal experience, what can people really struggle with when they don't get that kind of support? It's a huge hit to your mental health. If you're not supported, you know, you imagine sitting in a space where you're called the wrong name every single day. People give you the wrong pronoun. But then 
you know, we get some instances where people will actively, you know, they've gone, oh, okay, you want to be a guy, but you're not. Mm. And, you know, I went to the shop today and look, here's a, a pretty pink shirt for you. And you get that real double down of, of negativity. But that sort of aggression because it makes people feel uncomfortable themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, it can be really difficult to watch and to hear what other people go through when, you know, I, I count my blessings that, you know, I had a relatively small family network and the difficulties that I did face with extended family weren't until a little bit later in my journey. But yeah, for young people, I mean, we only have to look at, you know, there's been numerous studies, both, you know, overseas in Australia, we, we only have to look at, you know, the writing themselves in four report done by La Trobe University, looking at the mental health statistics and the suicide rate, you know, the suicidality and the attempt rate at nearly 50%. Considerably higher. Yeah. yeah. And it's not because being trans makes you mentally unwell. It's because of the systems and the lack of support. It's, it's hard. Trans and gender diverse people are constantly, you know, we're, we're thrown around in politics all the time. When you look at policy and you look at the political landscape, you know, just yesterday I was having a discussion about the AFLW Pride Round and the fact that the AFLW still doesn't allow trans women to compete. They've got a Pride Round, but only for certain letters of the alphabet. Hmm. It's, we've, we've, you know, got our first openly gay soccer player and, you know, whilst the support has overwhelmingly been quite positive, there has been pockets of negativity that is faced. That's sexuality. We've been having those discussions for decades. Trans and gender diversity in, in comparison is still a highly contentious topic in addition. And then if you've got someone who's trans and gay or trans and bi or trans and pan, just throws another layer. I hope it comes to a point where people realize that people are people and you know, we, we see a lot of these discussions, you know, we only have to look at JK Rowling and the discussions of, you know, there's only two genders and, you know, you can take hormones, but it doesn't change your body and it's, you know, it doesn't mm. change what's between your legs and all the surgeries in the world. And, you know, we only have to look at the, the lines of like Kiralee with Binary Australia, you know, previously the marriage alliance to, to go, you're a vocal minority, you're a loud minority, but you're coming from a place of hate and misunderstanding. The science doesn't support your argument. What impact does that have on the community when people with profile come out and speak in that way? It's hurtful. Because for those people who also share those views, it acts as a reinforcer. And for a lot of people, you know, that's their parents, that's their teacher, that's their doctor. It's the people who are important and responsible adults in their life who are going to see someone else shares the view that I do. And I guess it brings it into the zeitgeist and in a way, someone who might be transgender themselves is gonna be targeted during that time. We see it still in politics now. We saw it in the, the marriage equality discussions. It wasn't marriage equality. It was same sex and same gender marriage. You know, here in South Australia, the legislation up until 2017 was if you were in at the point at that time in an opposite gender marriage, if you wanted to change your gender marker to your true identity, you had to divorce your partner because they didn't allow for same gender marriage. Right. And in some states that still exists. New South Wales and Queensland are still quite behind. They still require surgical interventions to even have your identity affirmed. Still a very heated political discussion. So basic things like changing these laws and bringing all the states into alignment, that's yeah. a pretty important step. I mean, since 2013 at a federal level, we, we had a document that the Attorney General's department put out, it was the Australian Government Guidelines for the Recognition of Sex and Gender. And that was put out in August 2013. It allowed for an X gender marker for non-binary persons. But it also meant that under clauses 23, 24 and 25, that you weren't required to have surgery or hormones to be affirmed in who you are at a federal level. I could have changed my passport 
I could have changed my banking and financial institutions, my tax file number, my, my Centrelink stuff, my Medicare details. But in South Australia, I couldn't change my birth certificate until I'd had a, what they would classify as an irreversible surgical procedure on my reproductive health. Is that been changed now? Yes, thankfully. How are you treated differently now that you're perceived as a man than you were as a woman? Very. <laughs> it's, and I mean, I'm in a fortunate position that I am just seen as a, as a guy walking down the street. Not every trans and gender diverse person has that and not everybody wants that. But I do have what they call passing privilege. So that's a, a term, it's kind of loaded. Um, it just generally means that I'm perceived in a certain way. And thankfully it's the way that I want to be perceived. You do still see that we, we have a very gendered world and we still do have a very binary world. But people, you know, women will actively avoid me on the street. I'm quite mindful that a lot of perpetrators, majority of perpetrators, are met. And whilst I don't want to be lumped in that category, I'm aware that just by existing as a male, that it's part of my responsibility to, to actively speak up and you know, to do what I can because of who I am. What about the positives? Huge. My mental health has significantly improved. Love my job. I contribute to different community groups. And when I wake up in the morning, I feel happy. So what do you attribute the improvements in your mental health to? I guess being able to access healthcare and that helped me to, to be who I needed to be. I've got a great employer who they do support who I am. My mum, my dad, they go that extra mile, do little things like, you know, thank you, son. My relationships are fantastic and super affirming and they just help give that little bit of extra feeling of euphoria. It's not necessarily that every day I'm now dealing with dysphoria. There are some days where I still do feel that, but they're those feelings of euphoria, that sheer happiness and delight in, in who I am and who I can be. Does it sort of blow your mind that you've reached this point after so long? Yeah, yeah there are points where, you know, you kind of look back and you, you go, where would I be now if I hadn't had this opportunity? Can you answer that question? <sighs> yeah, I don't know. I wasn't in a great space back then, so probably still be in and out of counselling services if I was still here. So it seems like going this route just is the right thing to do for certain people. Yeah, it's a huge improvement on their mental health, on their well-being and just what they can do in their world and what they can be. Have you run into people who you see yourself in that you've been able to help through a similar process or even if it comes to mental health rather than being transgender? Yeah, I've been in a very fortunate position. Um, I do quite a bit of advocacy and I work in the mental health and, and sexual health sector, so I do get to, to have those conversations with people quite frequently, but I'm also in a very fortunate position that because of the work that I've done, yeah, people will seek me out and say, hey, can I ask your advice or your guidance or, you know, how do I do this? And it's been an interesting thing because I'm, whilst I'm absolutely honoured that I can share that with people, I don't want to be the one person with all the knowledge and it shouldn't be one person with all the knowledge. Education and healthcare should be a universal human right. So one of the things that I did was, you know, I created the Trans Health South Australia website and I got as much information based on hearing an essay, but also links nationally and to research and to evidence-based practice on that one website to make it more accessible. I created the, alongside with Sean, um, who I mentioned earlier, we started a, a group. There was nothing that was currently running for trans mask and for trans men individuals. So we started what was called then FT Men SA, and we changed the name to Trans Mask SA to make it a little bit more inclusive and yeah, now we, we boast over 600 members just here in South Australia. And what does that community mean to people? Do you meet up in, in person? Yeah, 
when COVID permits, yeah. <laughs> we we do in-person catch-ups. Previously, we were running them fortnightly. Um, and you see how far people come. Yeah. Like, it's it's incredible. You know, we've had people who I've been fortunate enough to, to share that journey of their first meeting. You know, they've just come out and, you know, they've perhaps joined the Facebook group and they've felt confident to, to come to an in-person catch-up and... We do, at the start of each meeting, we, we do like a good news share and it's kind of like a, an icebreaker, but it's, you know, like it doesn't matter what you're celebrating, like whether it's just that, you know, you got to work or school that day. Yeah. Like for some people, that's a win. For some people, they're like, oh, I've got my, my top surgery booked in or, you know, I've, my, my gender marker change has just come back. And, you know, we, we share those things and to see some of those journeys where they've gone from, you know, I just told my teacher and, you know, we've we've updated my school details through to, you know, for some people they've gone, you know, I just had my first tea shop and, you know, I'm finally on testosterone. And to be able to just see the happiness in their face. Because a lot of those people wouldn't necessarily have the support that you had from your family. That might be the only place that they feel like they can belong. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, some people don't have that. They they actively have to almost live a double life. In in one space, they might use a certain name and pronouns, but then in other spaces, they can be themselves. So, you know, we, we do have, you know, on our paperwork, when people come along and it's like, okay, who's your emergency contact? And does this person, what name and pronouns do they know you by? If we were to go, you know, we're from a community group, do we tell them which community group we are? Because unfortunately for some people, it's not safe. Hmm. They're not accepted. Is it the case that there's more young people seeking to be transgender now? Or is it perhaps more known about? I know it's just more known. So when we look at those that, you know, for the Trans Mask SA group, we, we do acknowledge that about 65% or so, I think the last time I checked was around 63%, um, are under 25. But when I look at the, the Facebook group demographics, it's quite scattered. Um, and even at work, my oldest was actually a trans guy. Um, he was in his 70s. So young people now are feeling much safer hmm. where we're seeing those discussions, you know, where young people are going, no, I've got a, a heck of a lot of life ahead of me to leave. I, I need to live this authentically. And young people are feeling much more confident and supported to have those discussions. There's a lot more access and resources for a lot of the older generation. I mean, for a lot of people my age, they're already potentially in relationships. They may have children. They may have jobs and there's a lot more fear and anxiety. But we're also getting people who are going, I need to be me. Do you think there should be an age limit on transitioning? Because I imagine that it can be quite murky waters, perhaps in like those preteen years, teenage years, where there's a whole lot of influences and perhaps, because I remember when my brain was still developing, <laughs> arguably it still is, but... <laughs> Uh, you know, you might think, oh, well, I'm feeling this way because of this or I need to be this way, but actually there's other influences involved as well. And how can you be so sure and start making those permanent changes at that age? What's your take on that scenario? The, I mean, the things are really clear that when it comes to, to kids where we're not rushing teenagers to start hormones, the reality is, is that that's just not the case. The media is really great at having these conversations of, you know, interfering with development and no, the doctors aren't. When we're talking around kids, you know, we're talking around what social supports are there. We're talking around, you know, if kids are just exploring with identity as a lot of kids do, you know, they kind of go through these discussions. But when kids are getting ready to start puberty, you know, that's when we notice a lot of those mental health distresses can occur we look at a medication called a puberty blocker and it's essentially a, a completely reversible pause button. Mm. It's while the young person is kind of having those discussions and working out what they need, it's going, okay, if we're, if we can get you to a point where 
you can make an informed decision and you have the support of your friends and family and your parents and your carers, let's do so. But in the interim, let's not put your body through the wrong puberty. Yeah. But if you decide that that's what you want to do, we can stop the puberty blocker and you go through puberty as normal. Or once you've reached that point where you're educated and informed and you do have that support and you are in a good space mentally to get ready to go through a, you know, an induced puberty, then let's, let's try and make that as easy as possible. Because of course it's something that you want to be really sure about. I mean, yeah. it's such a big thing to do and then you'd hate to start along that path or get all the way down it and then decide, realize, oh, actually this isn't what I want. Yeah, and that's where the services do a really great job at providing that education and providing that, that information around, you know, this is what it is. And, you know, just like every other area of healthcare, that it is a serious decision. But it's it also then it's making sure that, you know, particularly for doctors and for people that are, are you know, not as connected to the community, not buying into the trope of, you know, there's so many people who regret this because that's just not the case. Mm. It's less than 1%. When we look at the numbers of people who decide that perhaps they've made the wrong decision, it's very, very few. So when we talk about kids and we talk about teenagers, you know, making decisions that, you know, they're too young to make these decisions, mm. it's not done lightly. Yeah, I was interested about that. Yeah. How can people support someone who is transgender or is looking to transition? Check out some, some information. So, you know, there's like transhub.org.au is a really great resource. It's Australian. It's got heaps of information for allies, for medical practitioners, how to be a good friend, how to be a parent or carer. All the language guides are on there. What does this mean? Like if someone says I want hormones or if someone says I want surgery or if someone says I want to use these pronouns, it's all there. Minus 18 is another great resource. What would you say about how much someone in that role actually has to do? Ask the person that you're supporting. Because that person may say, I just need you to do this. Or they may be like, I, I need help, I need an advocate. Or they might go, I, I'm actually not quite sure what I need of you just now, but I'll let you know. But it's, every journey's individual. Ask the person, let them be the expert of their own world and if you see that they're struggling, then offer support. But do some education. There's really great resources out there. Shine SA here in South Australia, the Trans Health SA website, get some information and support. That way, if the person does say, hey, I want to do this, you can go, cool. What do you need from me? And what's holding us back as a society from taking this forward again from here? I think just an openness to have the discussion in a respectful way and yeah just to do so in a way that we can go let's does that let's mean do making this. it more public it, i think it means that we need to just be open-minded that not everybody fits a specific mold mm. and that our expectations of who people are and what their life experience is is not linear we we know that trans and gender diverse persons have existed right across history, across different cultures. It's, it's not something that's new or fashionable. It's been around for a very long time and it's not going away. But it also, we know that for a few people that they've got an expectation of what the world is and what society is and change can be scary. But it's just compassion at the end of the day, isn't it? I mean, yeah. they're all just people who want to be happy and people who are transgender are wanting to be happy like the rest of yeah. us. and. You know, many people are in that situation where they're not comfortable with the way that they look and then it doesn't seem to match up with who they think they are. Mm. And I guess it's kind of like, just imagine if that's how you felt. Because yeah. we uh, take for granted waking up being a man and being like, yep, I'm a man. Like, I don't yeah. doubt that. So, you know, imagine if you did. So it's one of those things where I tell people you don't need to understand to have empathy. You know, you, you don't need to know all the correct language. You don't need to know what everyone's going through. Just go, okay that's your experience 
let me take a moment to to kind of reflect what that might mean if this was me mm. and go yeah you probably just want to be treated with respect and dignity and just to be able to get on with your world why are you glad that you are the person you are now yeah probably that i can just be me i can be happy in who i am i i do greatly enjoy being able to help people to be able to be in the position that i can to let people know that they're not alone i had a really great mentor in sean and he gave me that and i feel really privileged that i can do that for others but if i can just help make someone's journey a little bit less stressful feel a little bit less isolating a little bit less vulnerable yeah that's awesome yeah well it's great that you're here doing that because by the sounds of things there's not a whole lot of people out there that can offer that as yet and there would be a growing number of people who need that kind of support who need to see examples mm. of where that it, where it can go and that it can be okay and in your case it's it's turned out better than okay you know you seem like very happy in who you are and yeah. like this was how it needed to be and i think that would be pretty empowering and encouraging for someone to see who's asking themselves the same sorts of questions. Yeah. And you know, when I, I got that message to come and chat, you know, it was, it was great because, you know, there's so many different types of people in this world and, you know, I'm one person with a trans lift experience. My experience is not everybody's experience, but if we can start having those discussions, if we can start having those platforms just about inviting everybody to the table whose voice is missing and having that discussion of how can we do that very well put <laughs> thanks for uh, thanks for coming in yeah it's an important discussion to have and one i haven't had before so oh, i learned a lot me. and yeah found it found it very interesting i think other people will as well so appreciate you getting up in the morning <laughs> <laughs> no thanks for having me and yeah for being open to such a, a candid chat i appreciate it that's it for this episode if you're getting some value out of the show please help us out with a quick rate and review on apple podcasts everything we do is recorded in video so follow young blood men's mental health on instagram and facebook and young blood mental health on tiktok subscribe to our youtube channel young blood media and please leave us a comment or send us a message if these stories resonate we'd love to hear from you and most importantly, please share the podcast with anyone in your life who might need it. We're all about reaching as many people as we can. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.